to Drummers Only Radio. Drummers Only is the UK's leading drum shop with store locations in Glasgow and Leeds. Our podcasts are full of interviews, gear reviews, and much more from the unique perspective of a drum shop. The show is hosted by two pasty Scottish dudes who talk real fast. Whoa. Slow down there, Braveheart. So here's Chris, the Glasgow shop manager, and Adam, the social media manager. Be sure to like, subscribe, and let's do this. Hello. Hi, Chris. Drummers Only Radio, episode 36. This is the last one of the year. Last one of 2020. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? We don't know. I mean, I, I mean, it's only, a, it's only a good thing, right, if 2021 is better than 2020. Exactly, yeah. But if 2021 is worse than 2020, we all be like, take me back to those 2020 times oh, when I couldn't leave the house. Remember those times? Oh, <laughs> what times they were. <laughs> the times they had a change. I was just going to say that. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so we've cobbled together a, a collection of stories from the podcast of this year. Yeah. We've done a fair few. We have. We have. We've done, um, I don't know how many, 30? I think so. I think... The first one we did for this year was Paul Savage, and that was episode 12. And if okay. this is episode 36... Yeah, so 24. 24 episodes. And those are 24 episodes, I think, personally, in my opinion. Um, some of them are chock full of nuggets of gold. I mean, there's some absolute gold in there that you've shared with us. That you, Adam did all the work for this. I'm, I can't uh, even claim to have done any more <laughs> than sat in this seat and record what we're recording now. So Pretty much. Yep. Thanks. Um, yeah, no, no, thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> um, we started videoing them this year, which was new. Yes. We hadn't done that before. That's something I'm going to um, just highlight in the first story that we go into today. The first story that we go into is the only one that doesn't have video. So, I mean, for you audio listeners, that doesn't really matter because you're just going to hear the audio versions of these stories anyway. But for video listeners, just to make Watchers. you aware, the first one, video... Watchers? Uh, is, is that what it is? The watcher, okay. <laughs> Start again. Um, for you video watchers, um, this is the first story is the only one out of these that we've selected that doesn't have video. But use your imagination. Yeah, so the, the video actually came out of an accident. It just came out of lockdown. Like, how do we actually do a podcast? Oh, let's do it on this Zoom thing. Yeah. And I mean, we'd spoke about it a little bit, yeah. like prior to obviously. But it kind of forced us. Yeah, forced a so, hand. As yeah. It were. So, so thank you all um, for your support of the podcast this year. We feel the back end of the year has has it's grown a wee bit. Yeah, more, I would say so. I would totally um, agree. Yeah. Uh, more people are watching uh, than listening by the looks of the figures. So. Mm. Um, so the fact that anybody watches or listens is remarkable to oh, me. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we get a lot of um, repeat listeners, but it's nice to get, obviously, new listeners. Much the same way, it's nice getting new customers into the shop. Absolutely. You know, so It's all synergized. Synergized, nice. Yeah, um, thank you for for the, the, the consumption of our podcast. Please continue to do so, and we'll continue to make it. Yes, of course. Um, I mean, if you're listening to it, you've obviously already found it, but... Um, you know where to find us. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, all the usual suspects. Absolutely. And if there's a, a please recommend a friend if you would like them to, if they think they would uh, dig it. We have guitarists listen to it. We do, yeah. Um, we do. So that's cool. Uh, have a wonderful, wonderful new year. I uh, hope your festive period was good. Yes, and we'll see you in 2021. We will. We've got a very cool episode planned for the first episode. I'm not going to, that's all I'm going to say about it. I'm going to tease that. 
Yeah, I'm just going to let that sit. Yeah, you should watch it if you can. Yeah, that's I. I would agree with Chris. If you if you're able to watch the next episode after this one, we highly recommend you do so. Um, and yeah, yeah, enjoy, and we'll see you soon. See you soon. See you in 2021. Bye bye. Bye. So what better way to kick us off than going all the way back to January of 2020 where we went to Chem 19. We took a little shop field trip and we visited Mr. Paul Savage. This was a lovely conversation with Paul. Here he is talking about one of his most memorable recording experiences. It's a tough one. Drum? Are you talking drum wise or just session wise? Just session wise, like so, like have you like came out of a particular session and just thought, man, that was like I'm kind of sad that's over, you know? Yeah, yeah, that would be. Um, there was a combination of two albums that I did, and I, I, I shouldn't really be saying this because it's not in mass, it's not in this studio. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, both of them were were involved in this in a in a, in a slight way. Um, it was about 10 years ago, maybe more, doing the first Phantom Band record. And at the same time, I got asked to work on the third Franz Ferdinand record. And we were working on demos in Govan Town Hall. And <laughs> of all places. Of all places. Yeah, this is, so this is where this is going. Govan Town Hall is a fascinating space. And, and I, I think it's been developed in the hall now, but the hall itself is just this empty, it was an unused, uh-huh. part of the building in film city we're developing the rooms and in, in different parts of the building um so the dolby studios there the only dolby studio in scotland is in oh, this wow. in Govington hall in mm-hmm. film city in savalas sound uh, so we were in transferland had a little room at the back of what is the main hall or the main um stage area in the main hall so you you look at you come in the hall and you look at this huge room with a glass up on one side, huge, big, double, uh, it had a balcony, so, uh, balcony bit, which was actually really dangerous to walk on. Um, and then the old stage, and then behind that, there was a green room, which is where Franz Ferdinand had their rehearsal space. Uh-huh. So we started doing demos in there. Um, the room itself was really interesting because it was quite close to the main stage. It had a hollowed out bit below it. So we were recording Paul's Ludwig, old Ludwig mm-hmm. kit without a skin on the front. So I remember the bass drum was just like quite dead, but mm-hmm. the room boomed mm-hmm. because the room had a hollowed out bit below it. So I found there was a sweet spot on the other side of the room I could put a mic. And it just had this tremendous thump to it. So I loved that room. It was really weirdly perfect for recording that type of drum sound because it was carpeted, really thick, old, stinking green <laughs> carpet, <laughs> which had this spongy sort of feel to it, but it was spongy and sticky. And um, and then the walls were like quite innate, ornately done because it was old school and it had like lots of wood panelling and stuff like that. It had some pillars in it, which also had lots of detail. Which, you know, I'm not telling you this just to get a picture of the room. Actually, sonically, is 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 a diffuser if you've got lots of detail. So these things that are in the wall, yeah, yeah. which are just like little boxes with little spaces, they, the the sound hits them and disperses them. So a bookcase is a good example of a diffuser. Right. 
lots of different spines on books uh-huh. and different lines and nothing flat. So you get this kind of sound hits it, diffuses, sounds good. So this room had a natural, naturally good sound. Um, I was supposed to just be doing the demos and then the band decided that they were going to do the record there. And Alex had bought this old 1960s, maybe, desk by a very, very unknown company called Flickinger. Um, apparently this desk was haunted. That was the story. Like this haunted <laughs> desk came over from Chicago. And it was a thing of beauty. It was an absolute masterpiece. It was an, an incredible looking desk. Um, sounded incredible. It had, it was so overspec. It was such a great sounding desk. And we did the recording in Govan Town Hall. They brought a producer in and I was the engineer at the time. And, and, um, so we, we recorded the third album, which was called Tonight in there. And it was a joy to work on. We were taking the kit and we had the kit options for the kit in three different rooms. We had the room I was telling you about, the green room with the carpet, with the carpet in it. We had the actual hall itself, which we could take all the kit and put it in the hall, which was crazy reverb, like stupid, stupid sort of reverb. And then they also put a cut on a couple of songs. We put it actually in the, like the story space below the stage, which is kind of like where all the stage props and stuff would be. Mm-hmm. So but there was a junk room down there that we, it was quite a garagey sounding place. So we had three different places. And Dan Carey, who was producing it, was really up for experimenting with different things. So the first single was, was called Ulysses. And in Ulysses, we had mic'd up the kit in the dry room, in the green, the green room, the carpet. And then he said, for the middle eight, can we go into the hall? But I want the mics exactly and the kit exactly the same. So we had to mark it all, take it, all the mics, and then put it in the hall. And just by doing that, taking it from, sorry, taking it from one room to the other, it was an incredible sort of difference in sound. You can hear it in the record. It's, it sounds like somebody just put a reverb plug in it, <laughs> but it's, it's not. It's actually just, we just shifted the whole kit and put it in that room. So we were using these spaces, which is a fantastic thing to do as an engineer. And certainly as a drummer, you get to hear different tones and different things. So how a kit sounds in a different, in mm. a different room. So they went to mix it in London with Dan. And because the session had run on a little bit, I was working at the same, roughly at the same time as the, uh, on the, the Phantom Band's first record for our label. And I was supposed to be finishing off, but I had postponed it because we were running over. And then I wanted to come in and mix it in here, but I couldn't because somebody else had booked the time and because I had been a wee bit late. So the only, I had two weeks booked, but no studio. So I asked uh, Franz Ferdinand if I could, if we could just mix it in their place on this beautiful desk, um, which was kind of like a makeshift studio. It's an incredible desk, but it wasn't, it wasn't a typical studio in the sense that it, the room wasn't tuned or had any sort of like obviously sort of like special soundproofing. It was uh-huh. a wee bit of a kind of like, it was just a really kind of vibey place to record and it was, you know, you're never really quite sure if it was the right thing to do, but it was always, always came up with really cool sounds. So looking back, it was like, okay, we'll do it in there. We'll try it. I'd, 
was mixing on these speakers I didn't know and this room I didn't know and this desk I'd never used before. We also had a setup where instead of like a lot of reverb and stuff like that, I didn't, I thought, going back to the old ways that people used to make up vocals and, and drum kits is that, not make up, but they would, they would affect them by sending a copy of the recording into another room mm-hmm. live. So there'd be a speaker connected to the desk that's in another room. So there'd be a, a tiled room or something somewhere. And then on the back of that tiled room, there'd be like a stereo microphone, stereo set of microphones. So you get the sense of space. So you can basically put the vocal into that room or a snare drum into that room. So a lot of old recordings used echo chambers. Almost like reamping. Yeah. So it's like reamping, but live. So I thought, actually, we've got the ultimate echo chamber in Govan Town Hall. So I put a pair of Genelex on the side, on the stage. And ran a cable like all the way down the stairs and along the corridor <laughs> to the live room, to the control room where the desk was. And I thought, oh, this probably won't work. It's crazy. But then I put two Neumann mics, beautiful Neumann mics, one far away to, uh, from the other, left and right, at the other side of the hall. So like 30 meters up the hall. Mm-hmm. So it's a big, big hall. It's probably got a reverb time of like... A week. Like, oh yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, so... Like, okay, this is extreme, but that's a lot of fun. So I tried it and it was the most incredible and opulent and over the top thing I've ever <laughs> done in a recording session. I had a basic Govan Town Hall as a reverb chamber. That's I could the put the vocals thing. in it, I could put the snare drum in it. It was just incredible. So all that, I mean, a lot of it wasn't recorded, it was just live. So as I was mixing, I've, I mean, God knows what the people who worked in Govantown Hall were, were thinking. It was like, they're hearing this song again and again. Or I'm hearing this screeching backing vocal that sounds like a banshee coming <laughs> out of this, studio, you know, this hallway. And there was these two mics picking up. And it was just the most incredible thing to have. Especially for things like, there was like, on the end of the first song, there's a big tom bit that ends the whole song. Mm-hmm. There's the sound of a tom. And it's basically the sound of that been sent into that room and dying off and a lot of the backing vocals quite Morricone right sort of like yeah. really long 60s backing vocals I mean not going through anything else except it's just real air and microphone and just yeah. but no plug-in like, could yeah. ever emulate that it was just yeah. one of the most incredible things and I probably didn't appreciate it and it's only just like in the last couple of years in fact that that first album was reissued last year and um Thinking back on it, that was one of those moments where it was like doing the Franz Ferdinand album in there and doing the Phantom Band's first album mix in there on that desk. Because the desk is incredible. And in that room and having that kind of thing to play with. I will never, never get that again. You talk about old studios. I mean, it's like having Abbey Road as a reverb chamber. Yeah, It's like, move over, Beatles. We want to use this to send a snare drum in here. Man, it's amazing. One of my most favourite conversations from this year was with SJC co-founder Mike Shaprari. Here he is now talking about the evolution of a family and getting out of a creative funk. It's worth noting that the co-host on this episode was with our lead store manager, Jake Brooksbank. 
business for the company to grow and you're kind of you're so excited about it all the time but you can see it in all the people that work with you as well i think that's mm-hmm. what's really cool is like it's not just you're not just leading the charge and everyone's just kind of like oh okay like everyone else is just as upbeat about it as you are and i think that's what's certainly from an outside perspective has helped make mm-hmm. it look or certainly helped it grow and you can see it as well with a lot of your younger younger audience like <laughs> there's no bullshit there do you know what i mean there's no like totally. like if you compare it to i'm not going to name specific companies but like with other companies you get that very big sense of there is a definite ladder here and like a certain mm-hmm. person on that ladder above a certain pay grade will not even want to know who you are whereas you know like everyone like including yourself mike the owner of sjc is just like yeah what's up man what's up how's it going yeah, you that's know. really important to me. I, I, I see other companies, you know, not even specifically just in, in this uh, music industry, drum community. But, you know, like my dad owned a car dealership uh, for 35 years. And so I grew up with him being an entrepreneur, businessman. And, you know, I would see, I would go to meetings with him and that, that stuff always kind of turned me off. And so, yeah. you know, surrounding yourself with like-minded, successful people that can do things that you can't and can put you in your place, I think is extremely important. Um, and where I feel very lucky to have such a strong team and, you know, uh, around me and with me. And so this past NAM that we did in January, um, was incredible. Everything felt not for the first time, but everything felt, um, we've gone through some crazy growing pains over the past many years. And so in January, celebrating our 20th anniversary, having our team there, um, our marketing team anyway, you know, half the company, um, every day just felt incredible. We were at the Airbnb all together. We were at dinner together and we were just on such a high of positivity and ideas. And it felt like there's no end in sight for this company. We literally, I'm still sifting through ideas from our sessions um, from being at the Airbnb. And like, we just have so many ideas on product and marketing and activations. And I'm so lucky to have uh, that crew. We call ourselves the taco boy crew. Um, so we have a text thread going the taco boy thread and we've got different documents, taco boy, this taco boy, that, um, so we're just, uh, I feel lucky, man. I'm re-inspired and reinvigorated more than ever. Um, especially, you know, after, uh, 20, 20 years, you know, they've been pretty yeah, long years at times, but, uh, it's 20 short years, really, you know, we're such a young, uh, new company still. Um, and we're so, so eager still to, uh, to just craft cool things cool drums yeah, yeah that, that toy awesome, story snare drum that you guys built for them was oh absolutely awesome thank yeah. you man. That was thanks great. dude and that's that's again such a testament to our team you know i we, we we brainstorm ideas put them in the workload and then you know the guys on the floor start building them and louis came up to me he's just like yo what if we put a pull you know the 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 stuffed animals of all these, <laughs> you know where, where woody says stuff what if i what if we get one and put that in the drum i'm like yeah incredible <laughs> that's exactly what we're yeah. gonna do so i bought one on amazon we ripped it apart and put the pull string and he's like ah, i got a snake in my boots like dude like <laughs> I, it's just those types of things that happen through that creative process are so fun and again testament to our workers and our and our our drummers that play our stuff that are willing yeah. to trust us to do that so thank you yeah for sure so adam you said that your favorite kit was the uh delorean kit yeah. My favorite kit was probably the Jaws kit for oh, the Jaws Jake kit was from, sick. Oh, so uh, good. Four years strong. Four years strong, yeah. Um, as soon as I saw that, I was like, "Oh my days!" That is something I've never seen before. How he found a stand to fit that rack, Tommy, and I have no idea. Yeah, but it was just insane, and it was something I'd never seen before. So, Mike, what 
I know you've probably got a handful, but if you can just pick one or two of your favorite builds ever. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys for both uh, for saying both those are your favorite. Those are both incredible builds. We had such a blast building those. That that Jaws kit is one of the all-time just top ones. And Jake Masuka, the drummer of four years, a great friend of mine. He was one of the first supporters of SJC. Yeah, is, is he local to you guys? They're, they're Massachusetts-based, aren't they? They're just up the street. So my old band in four year would play shows all the time. Yeah. And when SJC started, Jake and the guys came to my grandma's basement and visited, you know, the factory. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, we, we've crafted a lot of drums for them and it's always a blast. Jake is a very creative dude and uh, just got to give shout outs to four year. Those dudes are, their new record is incredible. Yeah, yeah. they're yeah, killing awesome. it. They've, I've been in love with that band for many, many years, but the new stuff is awesome as well. Mm-hmm. Incredible. So um, with that said, all of the drums we craft are, are, Again, kind of like my babies, my, my <laughs> children going out into the world. So I love them all. Um, but my most memorable and, and I would say hands down my, my favorite is the first uh, wood burn kit that we did with the butcher. Um, yeah. Was, uh, oh, it yeah. was a huge kit. It was like a 24 or 26 inch kick drum, an 18 inch floor and a 13 inch rack. And drums had been wood burn, I want to say maybe like with little little designs, but never as intricate as that. The mm-hmm. butcher... His name is Andy Morotek, and he played in a band called The Academy Is. And they're one of the bands that kind of changed my my thinking about creativity and drums. Um, met Andy through uh, Panic at the Disco, and no, I didn't. I met Andy at the at the Palladium in Worcester. It was them, Midtown, and Hidden in Plain View, and Matchbook Romance playing. And I went to visit the drummer of Midtown, and I met Andy at that show. Um, they were on Crush Management on Fuel by Ramen, so. Um, they were kind of like getting their spark at the same time as Panic at the Disco. And Andy is an incredibly talented musician and artist. And he came out to, to Massachusetts and stayed with me at my apartment for like a week. And he's like, dude, I have an idea to do a full burn wood, uh, full wood burn kit. And he stayed at that factory in our garage shop um, for six days straight, night and day. <laughs> I would bring him Taco Bell every like six hours. <laughs> Just to make sure he was okay. <laughs> yeah, dude. He, and he put these incredible owls and, and just you, I'll send you a picture. You can, you can, uh, we can post about it. Um, yeah, I think I've seen it. Such a crazy kit. And then we just put a really, really simple walnut to like a colonial maple to natural fade. And we put wood badges. One of them looked like an acorn and like a squirrel. Mm. And uh, we took that kit to Nam that year and it, it just turned a lot of heads. It had wood hoops and it sounded incredible. Um, I burned all the wood hoops. It has like little like uh, lines throughout all the hoops. So he's like, dude, my, his hand was cramping up at like day five. He's like, you got to do all the lines. It doesn't, it's not hard. So I did all the lines and it was just such a memorable <laughs> moment for me where the drums were incredible. Um, but it was a turning point for me where getting to know Butcher through that process really changed my way of thinking of drums, like where that allowed me to, one, it allowed the butcher hoops to, to be born because we made the mm-hmm. butcher hoops based on butcher. Um, and that allowed for things like the DeLorean kit to have the big wood hoops on the bottom or the, the Jaws kit to have the big, you know, shark teeth yeah. uh, hoops. It, none of those would have happened if it weren't for that relationship with the butcher and his creativity that inspired me and my brother. Um, so that one right there is hands down uh, my favorite. Amazing. Dude, that's, that's so cool. So cool. Like, I mean, it's just, it's quite interesting to just think about how it's evolved like do you get involved a lot in the actual building process anymore or um (laughs) that's a touchy subject because our manufacturing in the factory they they have such a flow and a process and Mm -hmm. the work order goes in the parts are pulled 
it goes through the steps, it gets photoed, it goes into our sound booth and it ships out. Um, I'm not like, I'm not very, uh, and I mean this in the friendliest way possible. I'm not very welcome in the factory because <laughs> I go out, I go out and I see stuff and I'm like, Ooh, what's this? Like, this would look really cool. Adding a stripe of this or like, I just see things, um, again, because of butcher or my brother or the guys in the factory, like I'm just inspired by so much. And I always want to add things to the process that gets frustrating because then you either going to go approve it by the customer or the guys have to then go back a few steps. So we've worked on this process over the last few years. where like, I know where, where I can kind of not step in where I'm going to make somebody angry. Um, but Nam and uh, artist drums and things like that. I take a lot of pride in getting involved with trying to push the limits and going, all right, cool. The artist wants this, but what if we did this? Yeah. If we did this, it would be something new in the industry. It would kind of be, maybe be a trendsetter or turn some heads where it won't just be your typical age white pearl drum set. It'll be an age white pearl drum set turned on its side where there's four or five other accoutrements, if you will, that oh, other, good drum, <laughs> other drum companies. Strong. I like, I use that word in my head a, long, a lot. What accoutrements <laughs> can we add? I can't spell it, but it's a good word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can't spell it either. Uh, we're drummers, man. We don't know how to how to spell or do things like that. We can count to four. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I try to, and I love getting involved. Like we've done a lot of yard sale drums where we'll go through the factory and liquidate a lot of old stuff. Um, and I like getting involved with that. You know, I do like to get in and assemble a, li a little bit. I know it's kind of a pain in the butt for the guys because it's it's taking their tools, and I'm I'm kind of in their way a little bit, but. Um, I like to do that because it kind of brings me back to the early days in the in the getting my hands dirty. Like my mom helped me assemble a bunch of drums last year. Um, it just I don't know. I it's to me it's staying true to our roots and it's getting me back not just behind a desk because I live ninety nine percent of my life uh, sure. work wise in spreadsheets and things like yeah. that. So sure. um, yeah, I I uh, it's not the most welcome all the time, but I I do enjoy <laughs> it. And I guess that helps kind of freshen you up for when you do go back to. You. The, the office if you will um of like going back to the spreadsheets because then you you kind of bring in a whole new energy to it again because you've been back to the roots of it you know totally yeah and i i implore any business owner or any musician that is in a creative funk to like just stop get out of what you're in day to day and go out and do something different like for a few years mm -hmm. i was out drum teching and just going on the road and being with the artists because it would give me an insight to the issues they were experiencing to help figure out new ways to craft drums. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a new way of looking at things. And um, again, you know, just getting back to the early days for me, like remembering why we're here um, and just for the love of drums, you know? Steve White is such a well-respected drummer within our industry, so it was an absolute pleasure to get a chance to sit down and have a conversation with him. Here he is now talking about the importance of playing for the song. The, the kind of the, the right thing to do. And as I say, the, my approach is very basic. I, I don't, um, you know, I take the basics, I take the rudiments, um, and I know that that's not popular with some kinds of drummers, but I, I take them. I, I think that you're, um, you, you know, the, the, using the rudiments musically is something that I really enjoy being able to explore using basics and singles and doubles and subdivisions. But 
you know, making a band sound good and, a, and an artist sound good and being able to um, really have, have had a, a, a good attempt at that studio skill um, because you see some um, uh, phenomenal drummers on social media and you see some phenomenal drummers with, you know, extraordinary technique, but you kind of know that if you were to record them, um, it would sound like a car crash because there's no, there's no sort of deference to dynamics. Mm. There's no, you know, all the subtleties that never get talked about on social media. It's just, uh, you know, brilliant. we all love technique, but what technique, has become in on some elements of, of, of the drum world is if you could imagine a, get hiring a, a, a brilliant crafts person to come around and do a great job for you, mm-hmm. whether it's a, you know, a, a really intricate electrical job or a plumbing job or something or a, or some amazing rendering, something, you know, very practical. What generally somebody that's really good does is they come round, they mm. they work from a very clean stool. They don't just chuck all their, to- their, their tools on the floor and just open for the, to pick the right chisel or, or or trowel. That doesn't happen. What they do is they pick the right thing for the job, and everything is polished and it's clean and it's sharp. And that for me is what technique is about. You know, working on mm. technique. But you don't go in and just throw everything on the table mm-hmm. because no one's interested in that. Yeah. And, you know, some of the some of the songwriters that I've worked with over the years, and I can, you know, um, Paul and Noel and and John, John um, Martin, when I did some stuff with him, they they're not really, uh, you know, that interested in drum uh, per se. They like drummers. They love what drums bring to the music. But. When you start going off to, you know, into the realms of, of long drum solos and things mm. like that, they're not interesting. No, no. So, so it's, a, it's a bit of a cul-de-sac that I try to, to tell my students to just be a little bit careful of, of just drums and drumming for drum's sake. Yeah. Because it, it, you've got to have the, the other elements that make you progress, which is music, it's songs, it's bass players and, and guitarists and keyboard players and vocalists. And your contribution to their to their output is what creates the rounded musician, not just a drummer. Yeah, I mean, watching the lo-fi sessions has been an amazing education because you see how you do it musically. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, like, like uh, I was watching. Um, is my fire gone out? Is that the name? Yeah, I was watching that earlier. That like. You play that first fill and it wasn't until you explained it was triplets because I heard it as 16th notes the first time I heard it. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. And, you, and on beat two. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, and that's, and a lot of people have gone, ah, oh, I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do, 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 you te- do you teach that though? Do you teach people how to how to sneak it in as it were or how to make like the, the doubles and changing man how you you take something really simple that's beautifully musical but it needs technique to execute it does that make yeah it does it does make sense and, and that's what i'm trying to do is to try and sort of uh, you know push across this mantra that that it, it that music comes first and, and your support of the song comes first and we in this country um we produce some of the best song drummers on the planet you know yeah. and america really has a a, a kind of a, a an edge on us in a certain technical approach because they've been doing it a lot longer but if you look at the the you know the the drummers um who i love i mean from uh you know from woody woodmansey mm. to uh to, to to ginger to you know all the way up to stephen morris and rennie and mm. and uh you know mm. and henry spinetti and um all of these, and I could go on and on about the 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 the, the joys of 
and talents of what British drummers mm. bring to the table. And people like Ted McKenna, God rest him, you know, yeah. songs, they, they play for the song, mm. you know. And, and, and so my sort of thing, it always kind of starts from that point of view. And then if you're working on your technique, um, you know, you, you can start, start to, to, to push ideas in if you're confident. And um, if you're, you know, one of the things I do is subdivisions. I, I love the whole idea of working with something like Joe Morello's Table of Time, yeah. being able to take a subdivision, quarter note, quarter note triplet, um, eighth note, eighth note triplet, you know, 16th note, uh, quintuplet, sextuplet, septuplet, yeah. 32nd notes, nines, tens, elevens, twelve, and then to try to sort of break them up to try and thought of, can I do these as doubles now? Can I do these as paradiddles? Can I, mm. can I, you know, make, and then try to make them musical. Yeah. And some people do say, well, you know, if you're just thinking about sticking patterns all the time, you're not really creating music. But I think that if you do pay enough attention to the basics, what happens in the same way that you um, learn a language and we're just free forming in terms of conversation here. And, but we still have to learn the basics. So if you're in command of basic language, you eventually can converse. Mm-hmm. And I think if you are in charge and very well versed in the basics of drumming, then it makes it easier to converse musically. So you're not thinking paradiddle, paradiddle, double, <laughs> six, four, four. Yeah. You don't, it, it's not like that. It yeah. becomes a conversation. Yeah. So that's why I'm so, you know, and I do think, you know, I'm not a fusion drummer. I'm not a jazz drummer, although I love jazz and I love fusion. I know what I'm, you know, my strengths are playing and supporting songs and supporting pop. And and, and I know and have learned and worked on the things that really helped me to be a good pop drummer. Mm. And that is being confident. That's being able to play with a click track. That's being able to uh, to almost mix your own playing so you know so that when you you do play I mean, and, and listening to you know you listen to a lot of, I listen to a lot of classic records but when you do play you're playing as if the engineer is not going to have to do very much when they put your drums up you know mm. it's not oh you know we need to gate that snare drum or oh the, the the double strokes are not really coming out and that again is a is a very esoteric skill. Mm. And you listen to all the Motown drummers, and you listen to drummers like Steve Jordan, and you listen to drummers um, like uh, Keith Carlock, and and you know they have that ability to to sound almost like they're mixing themselves. Mm-hmm. And and you know uh, I mean you know Questlove, people like that, you know um, they they are masters at that. And that I think is 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 a skill that doesn't get spoken about enough because being able to go in and start that process with the engineer in the room and say, look, these are my drums. You know, how do you think they sound? Do they sound good in the room? Oh, yeah, they sound really good in the room. That builds a confidence straight away rather than trying to listen to an individual drum from a snare mic in another room. The drums sound good on their own. Well, that's a basis. You know, is there enough dampening in the bass drum? Is there too much dampening in the bass drum? Have you got a reference? You know, I remember working with LaRue and and she she came in and she said i want the drums to sound like um when you hit the toms they sound like paper and i said okay have you got like a a, a musical reference that you can play me and she put on young americans by bowie and dennis davis playing drums and clearly i think that they were either heavily compressed drums or possibly concert toms you know bottom head taken off quite heavily gaffered you know lots of dampening so we whip the heads off you know, we put some dampening on, some moon gels, and I hit them, and it kind of went, goop, 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 
And she went, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's what I want. So, you know, just being, be, trying, to, trying to be um, accommodating and mm. trying to build up that musical rapport. But then, as I say, if you're working on those kind of basics all the time and you're keeping, you know, your chops up, when you get an opportunity to do something like Changing Man, where Paul's like, well, I want like a, I don't want a, a, a random fill. He hated random fills, Paul. He liked sort of a musicality to the fill. So, you know, the quarter note thing, very sort of solid. And when it got to that little um, embellishment, I was able to just do a very relaxed 30-second stroke roll. And that's all it is. It's a 30-second stroke roll for one and a half beats. Mm -hmm. And it fitted perfectly and then straight back to that quarter note. There was no – and I have heard drummers do it where it's almost like um, leaping off a cliff when you get to that double stroke mm -hmm. roll. And, and because they don't – you know, they think, is it in time? Are you just trying to do a almost like a scratch roll, which I'm mm -hmm. not. It's just subdivided mm -hmm. and it's just 30 seconds. And it's as easy, you know, as anything because I've put the work in to, to, to have mm. my tech respond in that way. Of course, we haven't just spoke to guests on this podcast this year. We've tried to get a little bit creative and a little bit different. So with that in mind, here's an excerpt from an episode we did earlier this year. Here's how simply changing the hoop can make such a drastic difference to the sound of a drum. Um, so in front of us, we talked about this um, at the top of uh, this episode. We have two Yamaha Stage Custom Snail Snail Stairs. Snail, you nailed that. Do you want to do that again? Uh, in front of us, we have two <laughs> Yamaha Stage Custom Snail Stairs. Snail Stairs. <laughs> <laughs> That's Neil Stairs, his brother. <laughs> so what we decided to do with this um, is. About a year or so ago, maybe longer, I wrote a blog post um, before Adam. In fact, it'll be longer than that because it was before you were working here. Yeah. So it was a couple of years ago. I wrote a blog post around the theme of, of how to change your snare drum without changing your snare drum. So uh, the, the three key elements I found to be true outside of the shell are hoops, heads and wires. So we decided to take two identical drums and put two identical heads on them, but we've changed the hoops. So um, the drum that is on my left is um, the the drum right out of the box uh, with an ambassador coated on it which has triple flanged hoops and the drum that's on Adam's right is the box but with die cast hoops on it top yes. and bottom now the caveat is that these are not Yamaha die cast hoops um, Yamaha die cast hoops are slightly different from regular die cast hoops in that they are aluminium and not steel these are steel die cast hoops and in fact they are pedal steel oh, die cast hoops um, so yeah we're going to play a little bit of each drum uh, just so that you can hear how changing just a simple thing like the hoops will really affect the sound now the way i tuned them is I, I got the bottom heads roughly to be the same and then i used exactly the same method for each top head i got them to tension and then i basically put half a turn on each one um what was really remarkable is is how quickly the die cast hoop version came to tension versus the triple flange tube. Yeah. You know, so the die cast obviously heavier, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely it's heavier. So you're gonna notice a few things. To me I think the die cast is just much more articulate. Mm -hmm. It gets to the core of the sound. There's less ring. Mm, yeah, which it's much drier, yeah. Yeah, which um I don't know why it surprised me. Well I, I think obviously the weight of the hoop would dry in my opinion or my, my thought process is the weight of the hoop would dry out the drum a lot. You're absolutely correct you know? and I should know that, but it just was surprising to hear them 
side by side. Yeah. Um, Is this the first time you've done a comparison like this where it's literally been two of the same drums? Yep. Yeah. Yep. It so, is. Wow. Well, um, it is so yeah uh, the first one I'll play uh, I'll play the one with the um, triple flash hoops and then Adam because it's beside him can play the one with the die cast hoops so here goes beautiful it sounds great yeah, it like, does, man. Don't that's forget that's the, obviously the drum throws off on that. It does sound great. And the, 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 the only difference between this and out the box is it's an American head, yeah, as opposed to a Far Eastern head. But they're effectively both single ply heads. Yeah. So, so now I'm going to play the stage custom snare with the diecast hoops. I mean, I like that a lot. It's just instantly a pro drum. Mm-hmm. Instantly, like it's a very, very different machine yeah. with those hoops on it. It's, it's interesting as well because usually on those kind of, I guess, lower end steel drums, there is that kind of, there is that ring to it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it's, I'm actually quite blown away by how much the diecast hoops taking that away. Yeah, the so, the crack. No dampening on these drums either. It's yes, worth mentioning. Correct. You know? Um, the, 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 this is like a mid-end crack there um, it's just it becomes like this backbeat machine oh big time yeah I, I think and this is without bagging this drum because it's amazing for the money what is mm-hmm. it like 120 quid or something something like that um, crazy yeah um, so it, it, it hits a price point and I think what people must understand is it hits a price point it, it gets you I mean it's a 10 lug drum firstly for that kind of money mm-hmm. uh, it's really solidly built Um but in order to hit that price point, there's only so much they can do, which is why it comes with triple flanged hoops mm-hmm. um, and not die cast hoops. Yeah. Um, but the minute you put a die cast on the top or on well, the top and bottom, it's just a different thing, different animal entirely. Ah, big time, yeah. I would love to hear what it sounds like with a die cast hoop and maybe a thicker head on it, like maybe an emperor or yeah, um, absolutely, or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that could be another thing we do where we just we do the same thing but we change heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, I think it would be really, really loud. Oh yeah, big time! This is the kind of I can see like uh, with the diecast hoops on it. I can see someone who plays a lot of rock music who really needs to cut through and hit hard. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's like it's got Big Dave all over it. Oh yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know, um, it would just, it'll stay in tune because of the weight of the hoops. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think you would probably pay about eighty quid a hoop. Diecast hoops are expensive. Yeah, they're not they're not cheap. But that still brings that drum eight eighty one sixty. Brings that drum in at under three hundred quid mm-hmm. if you had diecast hoops, which yeah. is bonkers. And it sounds like a th- like a well more than three hundred pound drum. And mm-hmm. what it also gives you is another drum. Yeah, exactly. So you have two snare drums. You yeah. have the same drum, and you can do you know depending on what it is you need to go and do. Mm-hmm. If you need something to be a bit more sensitive, because the the the, the diecast hoops take away a lot of the sensitivity. Yeah. Um, so the triple fly ships because the drums a little bit more open, mm-hmm. and what you 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 can't see on the camera is that the triple fly because it needs to be 
to get to the same level of tension, you end up just putting a taking it a little bit, putting a little bit more turns on the key. It brings the hoop closer to the head. Mm-hmm. There's much more space between. I was going to say that's strikingly the, the hoop. The first thing I noticed, certainly, and obviously it's unfortunate you can't pick this up on the camera, but um, there is like you can at least fit like almost up to the top line of your finger between. Whereas on this, you can barely get your fingernail on the, yeah. the triple flange version. Um, can I borrow a stick, please? Of course you can. Um, cause just one, because you only need one. Okay. Um, we never did a rim click. We never. Sure. Right. Um. So that's the triple flange hoop. Versus. And then here's the die cast hoop. I'm, just... I'm rim clicking with my opposite hand. Uh, it felt weird. It, can you do it the other way? Uh-huh. So, ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Just crazy. The Bonkers difference in volume. Yeah. Um, for, so if you've got to play those kind of, um, you know, you've got to play a ballad or something, you've just got a little bit more power behind your rim click as mm-hmm. well. So, um, massive advocate of, of doing things like that. If you, if you, you know, you're on a really tight budget and you're bored with your snare drum sound, throw some new hoops on it, man. Yeah. Tama do some great options. Um, we should have, you know, if we could have at some point, we could have done an S hoop too. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe for next time we'll do, we'll, we'll get S hoops involved. And the S hoops are like a hybrid. Um, they have the flidget. I tried to say, I, I don't know what I tried to say. Rigidity <laughs> and something else of a, of, it's like a combo platter between die cast and triple flanged, mm-hmm. you know, a bit flatter as well on the top. It's worth pointing out with these two drums that we have in front of us that the basically are as standard other than obviously one having a die cast hoop so they still have the same wires that would come with yes, it as well yes they do so I mean and bottom head can you imagine with the the, the same drum with the, obviously the die cast hoop on it but like a set of um, pure sound wires on it yeah man like some twisters or some wires. blasters or something yeah like just really because obviously with the weight of the die cast hoop obviously it takes a lot of the sensitivity of the snare away doesn't mm-hmm. it yeah. so with twisted wires you're obviously getting double the wire for your money mm-hmm. or even super 30s mm-hmm. you know get a lot of that you still get that power and that rim shot, um, but then you'd also kind of regain some of that sensitivity. Yeah, uh, amazing, amazing. Wires. So yeah, if you are, you know, and don't forget, you can get die cast hoops with eight lugs. You know, so if you've got mm-hmm. an old acolyte that you want to um, spruce up or do something a little different with, or if, even if you have, you know, Perro's modern utility drums come with eight lugs on them. So if you wanted yeah. to up the game on one of them, it's oh, just, absolutely. This isn't limited to just this Yamaha Stage Customs. No. Like if you've got a kind of relatively mid to low end snare drum like I I could pretty much guarantee that changing the hoop will make it remarkably different absolutely I mean if you want to get the sensitivity and the power just put a die cast on the top just leave the bottom yeah you know and then mix and match your hoops there's no reason you can't do that you know? no way I, um, I think sometimes we fall really really victim to just being subscribed mm-hmm. like we buy a drum off the shelf and because it's presented to us in a certain way that's kind of what we stick with mm-hmm. You know, we don't explore. Think about, I, I, I tend to think about this kind of almost like effects pedals in a way. It's a way right, of okay. changing the sound of the core instrument, mm-hmm. you know, um, without any sort of wizardry, really. You've just changed yeah. a bit of metal. Yeah. Um, I find it really fascinating. It would be fascinating to do a blind. So I guess, in a way, people listening to this are getting a blind sound test if they aren't watching it. Um and obviously if we hadn't told them which snare was which, it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to see, like, okay, so 
what's different about these two drums because I guarantee ninety percent of people would think that they're two completely different drums. I would, you know, uh, you would, hands up. I would easily think they were two different drums. Um, you know, I may even think that the diecast hoop one is brass because of the volume. Oh, I yeah, you I know, could, I could yeah, definitely because I I, I do like that you lose a little bit of the ring. I think it takes it just, you know, no need for gels, no need for, you know, you don't really need to temper it anymore because mm-hmm. the hoop's doing the job. The hoop's know? doing that for you. No, yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of made me almost reconsider um, what hoops I've got in my snare drums currently. Well, we we talked about this as well. If, we, if Adam and I had used our brains, <laughs> we would have both brought, we both have a Yamaha brass drum that's the same size and one has, mine has die cast hoops and Adam's has... Uh, triple flanged mm-hmm. but then we realized that this was another way to show that you can do this on a budget if you don't have to have if you don't have 400 quid to spend on a yeah of drum. course but yeah, yeah um, obviously goes without saying if you change the hoop on an already expensive snare drum it's just going to amplify it even more yeah you know? or you know you know why not put triple flange on a die cast oh yeah big time you know yeah. there's no there's you know we've gone one way but there's no reason yeah. you can't go the other way you know because uh, we should do that. I'll bring mine and you bring yours in, and we sure. see the, how those drums sound. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, you're gonna yours is gonna probably be more open. Yeah, you're more, more sensitive. You know, yeah, big time. Yeah, man, into it, into it. An extremely controversial and very overlooked aspect of playing the drums is tuning them. When we sat down with Jeff Davenport, he expressed the importance of not only using tools such as drum keys but also using your senses. Optimistic. Yeah. What really struck me about them, and I don't know about you, Adam, is Mm -hmm. just you seem to be able to remove the kind of dark art from it and just make it super concise, Mm -hmm. super simple. Here's how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think what you said earlier on about the the whole... Because we've all been there. I've certainly been there when I was first learning how to tune drums. Like, I remember yeah. watching a 25-minute long video on how to tune a snare drum. And the guy yeah, yeah, yeah. hadn't even touched... 15 minutes in, the guy still hadn't even touched the snare drum. And I'm just like, yeah. this is no use to me, you know? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah keeping like, it relevant is very important because uh, I've been a gigging drummer like everybody else has been a gigging drummer. And mm-hmm. I've done those 75, 80-pound gigs down the pub where you lose your drum key down the back of the stage. <laughs> um, you have all these monitoring issues it's just loud everybody's drunk you know the, this is where you need to get your sound uh, for the evening like really quickly because the bass player is telling you to be quiet um, and you've got you know you've got all these pressures um, but you've also got the most complicated piece of you know equipment on the stage yeah. you know I've always said this a, a bass player has four screws and he's got a machine <laughs> to help him <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um, we we can have up to 72 tuning bolts to adjust very quickly you know to to sell the band to make it sound good to make you sound good and if you sound good you play better and you get asked back um but yeah I, I i think it's really important to to work concisely work quickly without distraction uh, so no children no tv no internet just you and the drum and and I I have this thing about using your hands and your your sight your senses really, you know usefully yeah. so I have a tuning triangle you might have seen it before which is just sight sound and feel so you put sight what does it look like how am I doing you know does it look 
correct sound wise keep monitoring the drum keep hitting the drum so that you're putting sound and sight together and then feel like how what's the resistance on the screws and you put all of these three things mm. together you have all mm. of your senses working and we are the best machine you know uh, a, a tune bot or a, a tension watch they're great checking devices for checking what you've done but they're not the lead element you know the lead element is us you know so we've got like 30 muscles in each hand and forearm at least um so that's 60 muscles ready and <laughs> you know we've got the equipment we've got eye you know some of us you know are yeah. obviously visually impaired or or audibly impaired and but the but the triangle take care take takes care of that because it's a, if you're missing one thing so say you're backstage at a gig and you've got you can't hear a thing or it's pitch black you should still be able to measure you know the the tension on your drum just using feel on each one but you just got to go around each one and check it's the same distance from slack you know mm. that simple they call that clearing you know in the orchestral world that's been used as a term for years and it's called clearing so you clear a drum um, and one oh. of my videos is actually clearing um, an entire 8 through 16 sonophonic kit. Um, <laughs> wow. Which happens in, I think, in three minutes. Whoa. Yeah, because you just, you, just, you just work through it. Just work through it. And monitor what you're doing. Yeah, check it. Yeah, find, find that video. It's, yeah, we'll link it. We'll definitely it's... link that because that's, that's amazing. Yeah, yes. So that is, um, I think that's tuning, it's called a tuning multiple tom setups. So people are often wondering how to, they have like six, six toms. It's like, how do you tune that lot? Well, actually, if you use the same technique on each drum, the depth of the drum takes you through a scale. Right. Uh, and that's the, na that's the natural scale of the kit. And, and that's your starting point. Uh -huh. Now, often that's enough, <laughs> you know, Move on, drink beer, um, <laughs> write a book, do something more useful. Don't just, you know, tuning for tuning's sake. Um, yeah. So a spiral, spiral vortex of unhappiness. Yeah. So then will that mean that the inherent sound of the kit is natural top to bottom? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. If all the heads are tuned the same way on each one to the same kind of you know, distance from slack, you will have a scale. And indeed, if you take all the heads off, put them on the floor, you have a scale. Yeah, yeah. So, really, the, the 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 heads are just kind of guiding what the you know. Well, the, sorry, the shells are really just guiding what the heads doing. You know, so I have that analogy: uh, a drum is like a potato crisp. Um, that the the head is the potato, the shell is the flavouring. Right. Okay. So, but really, we we do get very excited about drum kits as as things. But you take the heads off, mm, yeah, pretty, pretty useless. I mean, I've I've always thought that you know, well, I used to have a, a floor tom as a as a TV stand. That, <laughs> a sixteen inch floor tom makes a great television stand. <laughs> Here to hear first, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, so they're pretty useless objects unless the heads are there and they're at attention. Then they start to work. Yeah, uh, then they become drums as we know them so yeah yeah as as quickly as possible because I, we've all got really important things to be doing in life you know um other 
than tuning drums. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you, Chris, as a, as a fresh dad, will know that. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I don't think I've, apart from in here, I don't think I've seen a drum uh, since February. There we are. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, you're right. As quickly as quickly as possible. Now. Absolutely. So, where do, I mean, your knowledge on drumheads when when the, the the times that you have of being in the shop and doing your workshops have left a really sort of indelible impression on people for a long time. Mm-hmm. We still get people regularly talking about it. Was that something yeah. you picked up on the way, or did you just? Or is it just yeah. something you like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's picked. I think as a pro musician. Um, the times that I have been pro, um, I've been looking for sounds. I've been looking for it. And I've been interested as a musician look, looking at other players. And I've always, always been, you know, back in the day, we, we didn't have YouTube and you just watched videos or you watched Channel 4 and you got as much information as you could from those that, that media, which meant that you were eagle-eyeing the, the band and the drummer. Yeah. So I I got really good at spotting what heads people were playing. So say you'd see, um, I don't know, Steve Gadd perform live on television and be like, I haven't got a VHS. I can't go back and watch this. Bang. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to write, oh, oh, that's a pinstripe. Oh, 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 uh, that's a K ride. You know, I got really good at, and I can still do it now. I, I, I spotted something the other day it was uh, the old tears for fears drummer mm. was playing it was playing a clear pinstripe on his snare for this for this live gig and a clear pinstripe on a snare drum nobody would think why am i putting it but back in the day the pinstripe on the snare was quite a thing um yeah. so it all gets stored up it all comes out and and that was years and years ago that was through the 80s and 90s and i think part of being a musician is that we've all got really good memories <laughs> for playing music you know you know playing you know we can play from scratch between us three here i reckon we could probably do 250 covers no problem uh, yeah without thinking about it yeah, yeah without thinking about you know autumn mm-hmm. leaves into lady in red into you know whatever you know we've musicians generally have really good memories and 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 sight and sound i think um plays a part in that journey you know you, you you're just looking at other people and i'm and I, you know, when I was at school in the eighties, we had bands that came to the schools, part of initiatives um, from, the, from the council to get, you know, new music into schools. This was Derbyshire. And those bands, I was just all over. It's like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And I've seen some amazing drummers. Um, Brian Abrahams was, was the most amazing drummer I ever met. He's a sonar artist still. He's a jazz drummer. And uh, he came into school with this Gretsch kit, 18, 12, 14, some K symbols. I'm like 12 years old. It's like, what is that? Yeah. yeah. And they're, they're diplomats tuned really high and he still blows my mind. I still yeah. can't play like him. He's still an inspiration. So I think, so that kind of constant kind of checking and adjustment and, you know, and then becoming a performer myself, you know, so oh, I'm going to put some emperors on today or I'm going to put some ambassadors and, why does that still sound terrible? I'm going to put an emperor on the bottom. Oh, it sounds better now, you know. All of this kind of thing, um, you know, just happens as you go along. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, what it's watching and learning, you know. It's, 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 it's that old, age-old thing, you know. 
when you work in a drum store, or in this case, if you own a drum store, some of the coolest things that can happen is going to see where some of these incredible drums are made. With that in mind, here's our very own Paul Burke about some of the factories he's been to and some of the gifts he's received. You know, the, I've been to DW Factory, I've been to Sonar, I've been to Yamaha, and they've all been really different. What I liked about D- the Sonar, have you been to Sonar? No, not yet. It, it was it. just so laid back, you know, there was like, they're in the middle of the Black Forest. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, the factory's in a village, you know, so I think at least, probably about half of the staff live in this village. You know, some of them have been in there for 30, 40 years. Yeah. It was a really nice, slow-paced mm-hmm. factory, as, as opposed to the DW Factory, which was all out, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. It was, I mean, very. Yeah. Uh, it was a total different vibe. Brilliant in its own uh-huh. way. Sona was really laid back. Yamaha, um, their facility in China, where they, they make all the top end, the recording custom, and the absolute series. That was uh, totally different. There was no drumsticks. Nobody playing drums there. You know, mm-hmm. they, they were all about quality. I mean, everything had to be, uh, you know, hundred percent, or or it was just rejected. You know, mm-hmm. so they, they were not that the other factories weren't, but I'm just saying they were so focused on quality. And production side of it, it kind of felt a wee bit soulless in that respect. Mm-hmm. But what would you rather have? You know, that you know, a drum kit that came out of factory and guys were playing it all day and having yeah. a laugh, or obviously something that was absolutely perfect. So, yeah, I mean, great to see these th- memories and, and things you learn at these factories really enhance the brands that we sell. I mean, our Yamaha business has been going up every year since, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and it's even things that you learn, like. The product information that you brought back from some mm. of these places with stuff you oh, would yeah. find. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. When a customer comes in and shows any interest in any of that brand, I'm like, okay, wait till you. Have it. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you all about it. Yeah. You know, no, yeah. <laughs> you buckle in. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get you a coffee. You know, you wait till you hear this. You bore the shit out of them about, about UV finishing on it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's part of the game, isn't it? It's amazing. Like, yeah. I love all that shit. Yeah. You know, and you just yeah. won't find that reading the catalogue. And yeah. that's, the, that's when people know you know what you're talking about. Well, I. That for me, when when I when some, I mean, obviously, I, I I'm not on the on the floor anywhere near as much as I used to be, and mm. that you know that's your thing, and and that for me has been great to release all that. Um, but you know that's what I loved when people come in, and they didn't really know what they were looking for. They knew kind of, you know, we didn't even talk budget. We just talked about you know what 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 do you see yourself playing? What do you what do you, what, do you, what, do you, what can you imagine? You know, think about it and and steering them down that road of getting them something totally unique that they hadn't even thought about. Mm-hmm. And that was, for me, something I really enjoyed mm-hmm. um, as far as matching a customer to a product, mm-hmm. you know. Serving? You were talking about Yeah, of course, I, yeah. I mean, you'd, and it, it, it wasn't even a case of you were trying to sell them something more expensive. It was just trying to educate and then, you know, see, see them get that product that they hadn't even thought of because they just didn't know, you know, why they... They, they should look at it why they needed it yeah. why they, sh- they hadn't thought of that brand before yeah, I mean, we've had customers and had every single 10 inch tom of high mm. end out on the floor to let them try it and mm. they end up picking something that they just they hadn't like you say hadn't seen before yeah. you know? mm. I've never thought about that you know yeah. great Yeah, I felt the same I know I'm talking about myself a lot here but I felt the same when I played Sona you know, mm. I've never envisioned myself buying a sonar kit until mm. I actually heard it and then played it myself. Yeah, when you first started here, you were all about your. Uh, <laughs> I was all about like <laughs> your break beats and yeah, those other things. I yeah? just like a sixteen-inch bass drum or, uh, or nothing or uh, bust. You know. Yeah. Um. So it's I, I get what you're saying as well about you know when you went to um 
its own factory and how it's all you know mm. it's very laid back because I felt the exact same thing with the Mino factory yeah so it's definitely mm. got the, the, a German way of life well do you know, know pff, ah, they, they do a lot of things right the Germans yeah. you know and that's you know making great product is, is, is one of them yeah. um, but Mino's you know there's a lot of kind of correlation between Mino and, and and certainly social media I mean their mm-hmm. socials that's where they've really became so strong in the last few years their output on that on those channels is phenomenal and it's something mm-hmm. that we are kind of striving to, to, to emulate in a way and yeah. is you know is to make it good consistent content and that's what it is it's just it's, it's all content at the end of the day yeah. and brand awareness and um, I think that's probably the thing that will help position us you know as opposed to other mm. stores, you know, mm-hmm. other stores who do great business, and you know, it's not about being the biggest of the best or anything like that. Mm. It's it's about finding what we do well and sticking to it, mm-hmm. you know, and that will get us through. Yeah. On that yeah. note, on that note, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <nice>. <laughs> <laughs> I just had one more question. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so you've obviously you've got a, a peril snare drum, is that right? That's got your name. Yeah, okay. What's the story uh-huh. behind that? So, um, 1996. Uh, were you born in 96? What's the uh, deal? 93. Then? Oh, wow. So okay. Three so, back old. when you were three, uh, <laughs> Peril brought out a 50th anniversary um, one piece maple snare. Do you remember it? Mm, uh, yeah. It was, it, it was a, a black lacquered shell, 14 by 5.5. Um, it had gold plated tube lugs. It had single flange hoops. Mm-hmm. Um, Claw hoops, no? Yeah. Um, lovely, uh, but that they'd run a promotion that year as their fiftieth anniversary. They were going to take a bunch of dealers in the UK over to see the factory and then spend some time in Hong Kong. You know, money was a wash back then. It wasn't. <laughs> nobody was worried about marketing budgets and all that uh-huh. then. Mm-hmm. So um, I worked at McCormack's at the time, and to get this prize, it wasn't based upon. Um, who did the most peril it was based upon who showed the most percentage increase that year in peril so working in McCormack's we had peril with Premier with Yamaha Tama with all the brands in stock you know of course I just had peril blinkers on from that point on someone came in I'm looking for a boom stand ah yeah okay there's a peril one you know I'm looking for some sticks peril are good sticks you know <laughs> so I need a kit for my son to export it was just yeah I was just laser focused on getting to the Far East mm-hmm. because I, the year before that I'd been to the saving factory the year before that I'd been to the Zillion factory uh, I was the factory guy you know? <laughs> you know I was you know, I was responsible for the majority of the sales in that drum department and then I was I, I actually loved working there you know yeah. I loved uh, you got a bit of autonomy in that the drum department being in the basement because mm. you were out of the way you know you'd, you'd, nobody was really thinking about focusing what we were doing but we you know me and Andy the guy who worked with me at the time we were just we just loved drums we loved selling mm. and we met a lot of great folk back then I diverse so anyway um, I was laser focused selling peril so come, come the end of the year or whenever the time came up to look at the percentage figures we were like 230% up on peril that year we were in I think, <laughs> I was, I think we were in about 8 of the 10 dealers amazing can't wait and then one of the McCormacks one of the family members who owned it the store um, informed me that I had that I had actually been on two trips the two years previous to that, you know. And trips were a relatively new thing back then. It wasn't; it didn't happen that often. Um, so it should go to somebody else. Somebody else should experience this, and I was absolutely gutted. So Grant, um, who worked here, who sold keyboards, who's an absolutely lovely guy, and I'm glad that he went because he was. I don't know if you remember Grant. Anyway, it's a gem. He went to the factory and he had a great time and he loved Hong Kong and all that stuff. And I sat in Glasgow. 
Uh, but the one good thing about it is, and he didn't tell me this, it was a nice surprise when it turned up. A box turned up a few weeks later, and um, my name was on it, and Grant says, well, that's for you. And I opened it up, and it was one of the, fifth, the 50th anniversary snares. Um, and inside there was a little badge and stuff, and it had my name on it, you know. So, oh, wow. So that was, yeah, that was pretty cool. So, yeah. so I've still got it. It's the only piece of gear I've ever kept. You know, mm-hmm. working in drums since the age of 16, I've been really blasé about gear, you know. Mm-hmm. Got this one minute, get rid of it, get something different, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was never precious about gear. And the same way guys come in and go, for the same kit since I was 12, or, you know, I'll never part with this. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, yeah, whatever, just get rid of it and try mm-hmm. something different. Never had that. But this snare, obviously it's got my name inside it, so it's yeah. never going to go. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, yeah. And I still use it. Still, I've used it in loads of recordings and great. gigs and stuff. Because yeah. like. I've seen it, like, Whenever you would do the occasional gig photo, you know, mm. it would always be like, I just... Like, it's, my, it's my only decent piece of gear, that's yeah. why. It's the only thing I actually own. <laughs> it's, just, it's quite interesting because you see, like, usually, like, you'll see, like, just insert a drum kit here, but mm. you'll always see that snare there. Yeah. What's well, really been great about that, though, actually, is it's educated us in here because you've taken stuff out... I'm all about the education. Absolutely. Yep. You've taken stuff out that we would have been maybe not too fussed about you mm. know like we just grab a pasty ride and yeah. you know play that for them. by the way this is great you know yeah. this is there's a customer for this yeah you know i think actually one of the things about gear is that you, some of the low-end stuff i mean i gigged a, a pedal decade for uh, a couple of years there mm. um and i just took it out with, with emperors on it i think it was a g2s can't remember it sounded amazing right. you know i just i think there's a there's obviously a snobbery about low-end gear but some of that stuff can sound amazing with, with good heads on it yeah. but then then there's also a snobbery about people using high-end gear for relatively low paying gigs <laughs> if they want to do that that's a, that's amazing good yeah. go for mm-hmm. it you yeah. know yeah. it doesn't matter it's, you know it's, there's no no kit is too good to take out in a, a gig no yeah. kit's too well maybe there are kits too bad to take out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you would play the hydro with a tornado you know what I mean uh, but um, challenge accepted <laughs> uh, totally. anywho um that never worried me and there's some good gear at that price point which sounds amazing mm-hmm. cool I don't know why I went all well, American I have no idea what your last question was but that's that was yeah our final story comes from Mr Todd Zuckerman it was an absolute honour and a privilege to have Todd on the podcast this year we discovered when researching Todd that he's a pretty details orientated guy so here he is discussing exactly that So from that night and from DVDs and all the stuff I've, I've kind of watched you do over the years, it's come to uh, light in my head that you're a really details-orientated guy. Everything about your playing, everything about even the way you email is super like precise and detailed. Has that always been a thing for you? I guess I don't think of it in those terms because it's just maybe how I'm wired and, and what I do. So it... To, to me, it, it feels uh, natural, mm-hmm. but the perception might be detailed. I, I, I try to have some sort of order, you know, in, in my universe, whether it's the way I communicate uh, verbally or, or through the written word or, or through playing. Mm. I'm, I'm fiercely on time and, and prompt to a fault. And, and um, if I drop the ball on something it's like for a moment it feels like the world is over even though i know it it, it isn't but i mm. i like to uh i like to have everything sort of prim and proper but yeah, yeah, at the same time I, I'm, I'm not crazy about it either at the same time so i don't know 
Well, it's things like we've been watching your modern drummer video when you were talking about the 10 most underrated drum performances. And it's like you pick out little nuggets that people would miss. Like, like you know, they would just maybe be, they're not listening properly or they're, or they're passively listening. When you pick out like these little nuggets, like the Dave Mattox thing where he plays like one kick drum note, it's like, that's just the details, man. You know, it's it's all there. You know, I had so much fun putting that together. And I think that's part of the reason why is because I love sharing the little bits that I think make something great. Like, you know, it, it'd be very easy to put on uh, Steve Gadd, Asia, Steely Dan. It's like, mm. oh, you like, you like Asia? I'm like, no kidding. You know what I mean? So you're not really sharing something like, check this out. Um, I mean, those things have been studied, uh, you know, at, ad nauseum i mean like hey here's rosanna jeff Ricardo. you're like of course you know so i wanted to pick things that maybe weren't uh often talked about or noticed and sort of shine a little light on on the things that kind of make me smile the little uh bits it's like it's like it's like cooking when you when you have great food there's some little spice there's some little something that adds so much and without that it's not the same thing mm. Mm. So how does that inform when you write parts? Well, if if I have the time to sort of properly compose something, um, I, I try to get in those little details where things will formulate. If I have a couple of weeks where I know I'm going to be recording something, it, it comes into focus more like, ah, that's that's cool. That's nice. Ah, you don't need to do that. So, you know, you know, straighten that out. Um mm. Layer, layer an extra bass drum with a snare drum right here within that lyric line or in between the lyrics, and, and it just adds a little extra something. People don't necessarily know what it might be, but all of a sudden you, you, you feel something. Yeah. That's what I, I try to do, and, and I like, there's magic in the subtext. There's magic in, in, in playing little things that add a bit of flavor, just like that spice in, in cooking that isn't a look at me moment. You know, we're okay. The singer stopped, and here's a little thing, and then back to the story. Uh, if there's just something that that is a little interesting, uh, a, a, a ghost note, the, the way the hi hats open up, or hitting uh, the bell of the ride symbol instead of a crash, just a little ding, a little flavor, whatever it is. Um, th those are the things that kind of create personality to the track. That, that's that's beyond just keeping time or playing music like. Okay, it's the verse, so I'm kind of medium chill, and now I got to play a fill into the chorus. Now we get louder, and then we get back to the verse. You know, that formula works, but then again, that's very formulaic. If you can add some things in there that will give the song a personality, or um, what I call hook fills, where, where you play a certain same fill, no matter how simple, going into the chorus. And then maybe the second time, it's the same thing, but there's one extra element that's different. And then the third time might be the, the busiest. Or you play the same fill going back into the verse. Then that, you're stamping a personality on the song to where if you heard that song without those moments, it's not the song anymore. Mm. To, mm. To, to make a, a great point, if you went to a wedding and the band was playing In the Air Tonight and the drummer played anything but good, 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 you'd go, what the hell? Yeah. It's not the song anymore. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I, I just went for the most, the biggest personality fill of all time, but that was just to make an example that if I can come up with something where that is now etched into the composition, I think that's that's a great thing, even if it's... Yeah, it makes it really human, I think. That's what I try to do. 
how would it then help when you did things like you had to learn all that sticks music way back at the beginning you know because you had i remember when you were talking watching your dvd you're talking about picking out parts that that john it's john right it was, it was the drummer's name that he had played and and you you know you had to make sure that they were there you could have played any fill but now i'm going to make sure that it's this fill that's on the record even if the time moves even if you know what i mean Right, right. I mean, the, the interesting thing about John Panazzo's playing is, is uh, I always say this, and I never mean any disrespect, he was a very active drummer for a guy that had limited technique, mm -hmm. which brought his sort of unique personality to the thing. It's one step towards a Keith Moon type of thing. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of playing, but it's a lot of down the toms and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, so it was a cool template for me to look at and examine and go, okay, a lot of the stuff was done in the 70s with that sort of 70s mindset and there was no they recorded without a click track so a lot of the songs are, are, are breathing from section to section and that's cool so how do i now bring that into then a 1996 perspective which that was brand new that was the future back then <laughs> what i had to do was try to hippen up some of the ideas kind of bring it to 1996 but keep retain the flavor of what was on the records that sold 30 million records that I had nothing to do with, you know? Right. Uh, so that was a fun template because there was a lot of playing involved. It wasn't just every song wasn't just playing two and four. They were very active uh, pieces of music with some progressive rock leanings on, on some of the things. So I, I just tried to do what I thought was, was best at the time and I knew that my job was to hold the other guys in the band so they're comfortable and they can relax and they can have fun and they can do their thing without ever having to look back to me worrying about, am I going to be consistent? Am I going to be play different fills all the time? You know, you, you get into a groove literally where you're just playing, but that that's what my job was. Make them comfortable and happy doing their things to the best of their, their ability. Yes, kind of selfless, egoless. I wouldn't say egoless because at the same time I wanted to play well, but I I knew what my job description was sure. and I knew that, you know, if I was inconsistent on or off stage, there, there could be issues and that mm. I could be replaced at any time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Has that changed any since your, your time progressing with the band? Like, have you been allowed to kind of have a little bit more freedom and put your own as you're, when you're talking about a stamp on things? Like... Has that changed at all as you've moved forward? It's been this sort of gelatinous living organism the whole time floating <laughs> through space. So, so I mean, yes, in some regards, but the, the cool thing is they never, even from the beginning, they never told me what to play or what not to play. All right, okay. They, they gave me freedom to choose what I wanted to do. And there was only one or two times in, in there, like the, the, we had a month of rehearsal before the first tour where I went for something, I tried something and it didn't work. And I kind of got up for a second, but no one, no one said anything. So I, uh, I feel very fortunate that they gave me that sort of freedom and that I've sort of lived in that um, gelatinous, constantly moving <laughs> organism for for all this time so uh i i just try to play what's what's right and what works for everyone but you know make no mistake i mean i i have bosses in the band you know if they wanted me to do something or if they've suggested something um you know they might suggest if something felt a little slow the other night and i go 
listen to the, the, the recording and I, I check it out against the original or the night before because that's that's my job. Mm. And there's been a couple times uh, where, the, you know, someone said, you know, fooling yourself felt a little slow. And I went back and I'm like, it's 144. It's exactly where the record was. And they're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I got gotcha. you. I yeah. gotcha. Uh, yeah. <laughs> don't, worry, don't worry about it. And, and normally, I think live, if it feels a little slow, it's probably just right, you know? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah probably. I mean, it's, it's, it must be different playing gigs the size of the gigs you play, stadiums where the little stuff doesn't get lost, but, you know, it's not like you're playing in a club where, where the energy is going to be different. It has to be right. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 here in the U.S., we play every size venue from the, the biggest places to, and then we'll do a run of of, of theaters, mm. you know, that are, you know, 1,500 or 2,500. And those gigs are great because they're normally longer. We can stretch out and play some of the deeper cuts. And it mm. has that sense mm-hmm. of honesty and that I know that the sound is generally going to be better than what would be normally at uh, uh, an arena. So. Mm. Uh, it's nice to have that that variance, but at the same time, like if I if I'm playing a groove and there's some ghost notes, and it's an arena, I know that quite possibly, depending on where someone's sitting, they might not be hearing that at all. But the groove would have a different swagger yeah. if I weren't playing that. If I was just popping out two and four, that would be a different vibe than the whole thing would would feel a little little different. Mm, yeah, I guess you have to. You still have to play it for you at times, right? You know. Uh, yeah. Well, I, but I'll also, I'll use that to also help subdivide the time, or if I yeah. want to get something just like a, a touch of a swing, mm. that is going to affect the the placement of the, the bass room in the snare room. It might affect how someone else is playing. The thing that happens all together collectively. Again, cooking. Thanks for listening to this episode of Drummers Only Radio. You can find us online at www.drummersonly.co.uk. Drop us a line. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Drummers Only UK. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. Any questions, info at drummersonly.co.uk is the email. Or if you need leads, it's leads at drummersonly.co.uk. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.